Hello, Sac State students. Welcome to another episode of the State Hornet Podcast. This week, myself and Max Connor talk to Daraka Larrymore Hall, one of the vice chairs of the State Democratic Party and a part-time political consultant. We are asking him about why some of the ballot measures, specifically in 2020, turned out the way they did. California is often described, uh, sometimes derided, as being a very liberal or very leftist state, and yet propositions related to issues such as rent control, affirmative action, workers' rights failed. And we wanted to ask him what he makes of that type of situation. He also describes some of the electoral history in California, what voting means and represents to him as a political process, and more. Daraka starts off this podcast by introducing himself, talking a little bit about his background, and exactly what he does in the world of politics. Thank you for listening. So, my name is Daraka Laramore Hall. I'm uh, vice chair, one of two vice chairs of the state Democratic Party. And for a long time, I was a county chair here in my home county of Santa Barbara. So, I'm very active on the the volunteer participatory side of the party. I like to work with grassroots activists and figure out ways that they can get more power and more influence in politics. And you do some work with um, labor groups as well. Yeah, I have a background. I was a rank-and-file union member, was eventually the president of my local. In addition, I mean, to make a living, I do political consulting, uh, but for unions and political parties, uh, mostly abroad, um, and then a little bit I work on uh, ballot propositions. Did you work for any of the propositions this last round in particular? I did. I did. I was part of the team working on uh, Prop 24, the data privacy initiative. Set the bar really quite high, much better than any other state on par with what's been going on in Europe and elsewhere. So very excited about that. It was one of the few bright spots in terms of the props this year. Yeah. Um, And I think that was one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on is certainly, I think a lot of students looked at, you know, look at California and think of it certainly as maybe the most progressive state in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Um, A very blue state, obviously, yet pretty much all of the propositions that you would sort of file in the category of, of, you know, on the more progressive side failed pretty, pretty resoundingly. So I think we, that was kind of the idea was to maybe get a postmortem from someone on the inside of why, Mm -hmm. you know, affirmative action and rent control and um, even voting rights with 17 year olds and some Mm -hmm. of these things have such difficulty gaining traction. And then as well, given you worked in the labor movement who pushed really hard to get a bill passed you know, for uh, Mm -hmm. rights for workers, um, you know, gig workers, how that was able to get overturned with a proposition measure. Let's take, uh, you know, 22 and uh, the the Uber Lyft initiative and that fight. Uh, Let's put a pin in that for a second, because I think there's a lot to be said about that one. But with the other the other ones, they really were not decisive defeats. I mean, uh, I would I would point out that we didn't make we didn't over or we didn't overturn the ban on affirmative action or uh, move to a more rational tax system uh, that I had wanted, and I'm sure a lot of people active in uh, the defense of public education, public public higher education, and your audience um, were certainly looking at Prop 15 really carefully. I mean, the the fact is, like, we didn't we we lost those, but they weren't blowouts, mm-hmm. and 
what we we've seen a lot of times in California is that the the kind of attention and conversation and activism that has to happen to get someone to vote in a progressive way contrary to you know propaganda contrary to maybe what their pastor is telling them contrary to what they might hear on uh, on on talk radio that the kind of conversations you have to have with people are are um, time consuming the fact is that so many uh, so much of our attention really really focused on the presidential election having those conversations was very difficult to do when everyone was just focused on the presidential and this is going to sound sort of strange but the 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 double-edged sword of high turnout and i'm for high turnout don't get me wrong i want everyone to vote but the double-edged sword of that obviously is you get everybody voting and that's people with that's going to include people who are like not paying very much attention to politics at all and are really just focused oh god i know this trump guy then they're confronted with two pages of ballot measures uh, that they haven't done and you know haven't thought about and and in every case well almost every case of the losses that that we suffered right much more money put into messaging on the other side when you know for example on the the, the uber lyft ones it's just really hard to beat hundreds of millions of dollars and it's really hard to beat a company that can uh, you know put a, a political ad <laughs> in its app um, and like pressure its drivers to become uh, propaganda vehicles for their boss. I mean, that, that was that was just a hard fight to have. But what was Uber and Lyft's argument for itself? Was it was it? Hey, it's really good when corporations can manipulate workers and screw over workers. No, of course not. They put workers out there. They put drivers out there saying, "I I drive this Lyft, you know, to feed my my." a uh, whole you know family of of sick kittens and mm. and and if you if you pass this then i can't drive to protect my kittens and feed them and so you should vote no so like what actually won at the ballot box with a totally twisted argument you know that's billions of dollars or millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars on one side and you know a few million dollars on the other what actually won and it wasn't like a neoliberal version of screwing workers. It was a very mixed up, cynical, pro-worker argument from the bosses. And, and, and like, yes, it's true that the average California voter doesn't have a hard-nosed Marxist political analysis to be able to sort through what's in the boss's interest and what's in the worker's interest when there's hundreds of millions of dollars of ads coming to them, making them think that they're voting pro-worker tax reform it's the same kind of thing a low information voter is like hey even if you poll them and you talk to them they're like yeah it makes sense that disneyland should pay more in property taxes but then throw you know 100 million dollars in ads at them you know convincing them that if disneyland pays more in taxes then so will you and it's just hard to fight that do you think COVID 19 and the inability to sort of do the groundwork um, of really talking to voters had an effect as well. Oh, hell yeah. My friend Lucas, who works for a, um, a grassroots social justice and environmental justice organization here on the Central Coast. And when his takeaway was that it was, you know, pretty much exactly the percentage that you would, that a field operation would count on getting at the doors late in the game, you know, towards like 
in the last few days of the election, it was that percentage that we lost by. Um, mm. And I can think of a couple of races here in my neck of the woods. And see here in Santa Barbara, for example, we were, the local party was backing a really great young first time candidate, Latina, local um, uh, young woman, young business owner. Uh, uh, she's a barber. We were trying to get her on our community college board um, and replace a really crap incumbent. And we lost that by like 70 votes out of, oh. you know, several thousand. And that's, again, like a thing that you could look at and say, yeah, that would have been an election day knock. What I wonder, what's your advice for a sort of, you know, as you called it, low information voter or someone who's who's maybe not, you know, particularly politically active and and is trying to sort through the propositions mm -hmm. as far as making decisions on propositions? What's your advice for for that type of voter? You know, I teach uh, teach at community college and university of, of, of a doctorate in sociology and Whenever I'm teaching students sociology and we talk about politics, I always try to really instill in people that voting is a collective act and that we, we talk about it and we teach students, we teach young people about voting by really individualizing it. I mean, think about how many times you've been told how important voting is because sometimes it comes down to one vote and that one vote could be you. Voting is your voice. It's your chance to make yourself heard as a person. And this is going to sound harsh, but none of that's true about voting. Your your individual vote actually doesn't mean shit. And I mean, and if you want to test that, write in the person you really want for a position and see what happens. Right. I mean, that doesn't work. What works is what voting is, is a collective act where you add your vote to other votes. And when they're added together for the same thing, then they, they it's in tremendously powerful. It decides who gets to be president, who gets to be uh, uh, the governor who, you know, what ballot measures get passed, who's on your city council. I mean, it, voting is very powerful, extremely powerful. There's very few things in your life that take such a small amount of time that have such an impact on society. There are very few things that you can think of. So voting is great. People should do it. But I try to get people to think of it as, as a, yeah, as a community act, as a collective act. And so that's why endorsements and organizations are instead of being the thing you should avoid because that's corrupt and not thinking for yourself, you should lean in to that and like devour all the information you can about which groups of people are on which sides of things. And frankly, the bottom line is as much as we shit on parties and in American political culture, we're just like, oh, the real good American is an independent and thinks for himself and he's a maverick and he's like, breaks all the rules like in fact it's a completely logical and rational thing to sit down with a ballot full of things full of people you've never heard of positions you may not even be super clear what they do and ballot measures that are intentionally written to be confusing to voters it's a totally rational thing to say what do the democrats say about this the republicans what do they say about this where are the unions where are environmental groups and so there's no shame in being like you know that i'm gonna I'm going to go with that recommendation this time because I don't know. Going back to Prop 16, where, you know, I think that was one that that uh, s seemed straightforward enough, but often when I talk to people, seemed to confuse people. Um, I think the rent control one was similar. Mm -hmm. These propositions that just sort of rolled back some restrictions didn't really create a lot, just sort of said, you know, was giving more power for, you know, institutions or the state or municipalities to kind of make some of their own decisions. 
and yet people read it as there's going to be rent control now or right. the state's going to take, you know, now the state's going to take what you look like into account. You know, it's like if you don't look a certain way, you're not going to get hired. Right. Or now we're we're legislating discrimination by forcing people to look at race, gender and subgroups. So and I mean, even you had, you know, our our school system, the Cal State system endorsed Prop 16 and um, and it didn't go through. And right. rent control was one of the ones that I think pretty you know not even rent control right that's part of the problem is the messaging just just loosening restrictions and allowing cities to be able to determine if any type of rent control is necessary you know what happened with those two in particular do you think so with the affirmative action uh fight and racial justice being on the ballot I really strongly uh, recommend everybody read uh, a book. Uh, This book by Daniel Hosang, Daniel Martinez Hosang. It's a classic of uh, political sociology in California called Racial Propositions. And it's about how uh, ballot propositions in California, um, and, and in particular ones around discrimination, racial discrimination and housing, how looking at the debate around them tells us a lot about um, about how racism works in post-war and modern United States. Um, so back in 1964, uh, the California legislature had passed an anti-discrimination law for housing, saying, hey, you can't use race as a, as a factor for deciding who you sell your house to. Um, and, you know, it was part of a wave of civil rights legislation happening around the country at the federal level and at the state level. So the realtors, they were angry about this. They didn't want this to be the case. They wanted people to be able to discriminate in who they sold their houses to because, you know, white flight and segregation were a big part of how they did their business. Um, and especially in during the boom, the post-war boom in California in the 50s, right, where people mm. were moving here. In the, in, by the millions. And um, there was huge demand for housing. So, um, so we, so the California legislature was like, hey, you can't, you can't like not sell a house to someone because they're black or Latino or Japanese or what have you. And keep in mind that in California, and you can, you can still go and find these in your, in so many of the, uh, the deeds, the records of so many houses around this, this state, but there were these racial covenants written into the deeds that said, you cannot sell your house. If you want to move to Oklahoma and sell your house in Reseda, you cannot sell that house in Reseda to anyone who's not Anglo-Saxon. And so basically we, by law, got, you know, made those unconstitutional, made those illegal. And but the realtors came back and were like, oh, no, we we need to have the ability to do this kind of self-segregation. Now, in that ballot measure campaign, they didn't come out like they might have done, say, if this was in Mississippi or Alabama in the mid-60s. If this was California. And so the, the realtors couldn't come out and say, hey, we have a right to keep our neighborhoods white and, and, and we have to defend white supremacy. They couldn't say that. It would have looked terrible. What did they say? This is about the inalienable right of a homeowner to decide who they sell their property to. And mm. the government shouldn't tell us what to do with our properties. And, and that was the debate, or that was the argument. And it won. In the middle of the 60s, in the middle of the triumph of, uh, or, or the rise of you know multicultural liberalism, 
you know, when when very few politicians in California would run around and say anything about keeping a neighborhood white, you know, they'd all say, oh, integration's great. But the rights of the property owner are sacrosanct. This is America. Property rights, property rights, property rights. And they won. So so then fast forward to you had people being like, you know, uh, black and Latino and and and, let, and let's be real. It was like the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action by numbers were white women. But you had you had political forces in the 80s and 90s that were like hey, women, blacks, Latinos. They're, they're making too much progress uh, at the expense of white men. And, and, and it was just a racist backlash. But of course, you don't in California, you don't come out and say, like, we should affir- end affirmative action because screw the blacks and the women and the Latino. Like, no. What do you say? You say, this is racial discrimination. And in California, we're against racial discrimination. And so we should vote for the California Civil Rights Act. And that's what Prop 209 was called. That's what Californians voted for, civil rights. Now, it was cynical and it was obvious what it was about. But then you come back decades later and we're like, hey, now it's time to overturn this cynical racist bullshit. Let's, as, just as you said, not bring, bring in quotas, which were never legal in the first place. But let's be able to use race and ethnicity as one of a set of factors you know, in hiring and education decisions. But again just as you you pointed out somebody just reading this or just seeing an ad on facebook it's all going to be framed as this they want to bring racial discrimination back to california they want to make california racist so you know that so again people shouldn't walk away from our losses on these ballot measures feeling like oh everybody in california is super conservative and racist but rather that like people in california can be completely tricked into thinking up is down and right is left and 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 freedom is slavery um, precisely because of the way that our opponents frame these issues why you know why do you think just the idea of any type of you know rent control i mean why is that word alone such a such an ugly word it seems in california politics it's a good one i mean i i'd love to see some real you know empirical data looking at at polling, I, I haven't personally looked at at polling that that drills down into, uh, you know, the messaging and, and so forth. Like what what words are devil words to people and so forth. I, I, but I can't help but feel like there's always this factor floating around in American politics that I don't remember who it was that said that, you know, Americans think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And, and and there is this deep sense of um, of uh, you know optimism about uh, about uh, social mobility um, that you know has been true, factually true in this country for a long time, but you know isn't right now, um, and 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 isn't always true, or isn't as true as people think it is. Point being, though, that somebody could be a renter and hear an ad or or listen to a friend in the bar explain that you know how much rent control would screw over them with their granny unit in the back of their house or uh and and then the person's like yeah that could be me someday someday i could own a home and and rent out part of it and i don't want the government telling me what to do with with that um in the same way again i can't help but think if it's it's similar to 
the national reactions that happen whenever uh, Democratic politicians come out with the most, you know, timid, pretty minimal tax increase proposals, right, on, on marginal tax rates. And so, you know, people are people are like, someday I'm going to make $250,000, like when my business takes off or whatever, and I don't want to have to pay those kinds of taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a way in which that just like gets into, you know, what in other countries would be a, a clear class perspective, clear class consciousness analysis of like the rich, I, I want the rich people to pay more taxes. I'm never going to be a rich person. And so I want them to fucking share their money so we can have a nice society together. But there's just always a, a chunk of American voters in any given issue who are like, mm, that could be me someday. It's not going to be, but whoa, do we like to <laughs> pretend it's to pretend it is. One question that I had that I was curious about prop 17 passed, which was restoring the right to vote for former felons, but then Prop 18 did not pass, which was allowing uh, people who are 17 and would be 18 by the time of the next general election to vote in the primary. So I just thought that that was a weird contradiction of these are both extending voting rights. Why did one pass and one fail, both by decently sizable margins? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing with that, right, is like we got to go out and find and identify who, who are people who voted for one and not the other. Um, because most people voted the same way on both. I mean, and that's always the thing in political science and we're like looking over election results is we, we focus on the decisive uh, counter trend or the, you know, the decisive outlier, not outliers, but the decisive part of a, of a trend or a set of statistics, because that's the interesting thing that changed, that made the change. But most people either were, were against both or for both most likely right um so what is it about what you know what was it about people being like okay yes somebody who's served their time but is still you know is on parole but keeping their nose clean they should be able to vote but something about lowering the voting age to 17 i really don't have a good answer to that except you know to point to you know those anybody who's listening who's a budding political scientist or sociologist or you know social scientist anyway like these are exactly the kinds of like really great research questions that are out there to be had. It's like, we got to go find out who, who, yeah, who is, who is the person who's like, yes, yes to felons, no to kids. Now in Florida, where they passed the, you know, a pretty, a really great set of reforms in principle, you know, on on paper to allow uh, people with um, felony convictions to vote. Um, it seemed really clear, right, that and people were confused, like, oh, people voted for that or for legalizing marijuana, but then also for Republicans. And and that to me is easier to explain that, of course, in within the Republican base, especially in the South. And maybe this sounds prejudiced or whatever, but I think especially in the state of Florida, there is a, a sizable population of conservative white Republicans with who like to smoke marijuana, who have, uh, uh, you know, felony convictions, who have who have trouble with the law. They're, they're like, that's a population of people who are like, yeah, I love Republicans. I'm voting for Republicans, but restore the right to vote for felons and legalize weed. Um, it's perfectly possible that <laughs> that that that's a population of folks who lives who exists in California too. So those, are, I mean, those are my like out of the ether 
guesses. But the bottom right. line is, it's mm -hmm. a great empirical, studyable, knowable question to go out and get the data on. Yeah. If, if I could ask one, uh, one final question. So you mentioned in Florida some of the propositions that were passed, because I just thought it was interesting, as somebody who was observing the election, that Florida passed, like you said, uh, voting rights for felons. They passed these legalization efforts. I saw that they passed like a 15-hour minimum wage bill, but then they also voted overwhelmingly for Trump, whereas California voted overwhelmingly for Biden. But then, you know, like we said, some stuff like reinstituting or, for, or repealing the ban on affirmative action did not pass. Rent control did not pass. Mm -hmm. And with all the talk that you've said this episode about framing, do you think there's just something to be said that certain people will like a policy better than the you know, party it comes wrapped with, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And also, I mean, in general, and again, for, for all the political theorists out there, you know, we have, this is the United States, gigantic country full of every kind of person you can imagine, and like constantly producing new kinds of people. So with that in mind, organizing those, this country into two parties is like always a fool's errand in a sense. Now, I'm, I'm the kind of person who believes that the two-party system is pretty ironclad. Um, I think it's really uh, historically been very durable. I, I think it's, our, it's built into our ele election system, and it can't be changed just by will. Like, just because we want it to change, it's not going to change. So, so American politics has this very strange task of sorting this incredibly diverse population into just two parties and, and so there's always going to be noise so to speak there's always going to be a group of people who mainly vote for one party but strongly disagree with that party's policy uh policy you know tendencies on on a point always african americans since you know starting with the new deal then through the civil rights era and the great society era have become an incredibly partisan voting block, right? The most partisan voting block for Democrats. Black women even more than black men. But black people vote Democrat. And 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 the question for a Republican is always like, can you chip away and get, you know, 15%, 20% of the black vote? Because 80% of it's gonna go Democrat. I mean, that's like that's a that's a, a tremendous, you know, social fact. But at the same time, when you do polling of African-Americans on issues like abortion, gay marriage, um, even some sometimes on some uh, environmental questions, you see them more to the right of center, right? More conservative, more conservative than the average Democrat. When you when you poll black voters on economic policy, you find them far more to the left of the average Democrat, you know, in, in terms of like more for government intervention and, and direct job creation and uh, welfare programs, et cetera. But, that's a, but that voting block is still reliably Democrat because, you know, the, the, in general, those things kind of even each other out or wash or a sort of wash. So, <clears throat> so I would totally believe, I mean, I think it's been proven and I think I know some of these people. I think I met some of these people the last time I was in Florida you can find like lots of people in Florida that are working class, extremely hit hard economically by the, the last recession and, and now now again by COVID because of the kinds of jobs they're in, are socially conservative, very much believe the narrative that, you know, people of color and 
queer folks and all of this is like bad for society, you know, have some reactionary ideas about race or gender roles and so forth. But like think the minimum wage should be raised because they make minimum wage and they mm. want a freaking raise. Um, so like, of course, those people exist. <laughs> Uh, and, and so then the, the art of politics, and, and this is why, you know, this is why the why we get into it so hard within the Democratic Party about what our strategy or argument should be, is that what, what should be our, our approach to try to get those voters in order to win win Florida, right? Because you could see you could see different approaches. You could try to get the voter in Florida that agrees with us and thinks Trump is racist and gauche and 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 like you know, embarrassing, but want, but are, are kind of wealthy and want their taxes to be low. So we could really push hard to get those people, or we could push hard to get the, the like oppressed, screwed over working class uh, voter in the um, Tampa suburbs um, who's working two jobs, but is, you know, racist or ultra Christian or whatever. And then then it's a question of do you appeal to them by being like, we'll raise your minimum wage to 20 bucks. That's why you should be with the Democrats. Or do we do it by going to them and saying, hey, actually, we kind of agree with you about the gay stuff and the and the and the the uh, abortion stuff. And you're and, and you're right. We should be more conservative. And, and the and the and, and both of those strategies might work, but the, but both of them would have consequences. That's where the role of activists people engaged, people running for office themselves, people being part of groups, people campaigning and so forth. That's where your power comes in, is, is, in, is in the times, where, the moments and the places where we have to make those decisions. That's where loud, engaged, strategic, well-organized, regular people can make a tremendous, tremendous impact in politics beyond just voting. Thank you very much, Mr. Lara Morhall. Um, is there anything you wanted to leave off on? No, just it, this has been a pleasure. You guys had great questions. Good luck in your studies and good luck to everybody listening. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. It was great to talk to you. My pleasure.